Thanks, Ron and Nolene. Morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. It's a day of new beginnings. Can you smell the optimism, the hope in the air after you've woken up, that is, once your eyes have actually opened? At a moment of optimism like this, there's often New Year's resolutions. Have you made any resolutions or maybe goals for the year to come or maybe just vague aspirations? I often find that New Year's goals or resolutions or aspirations are about solving something that's been left unfinished for too long. You say, this is the year that I will finally catch up on my tax returns. Or this is the year that I will finish my thesis, finish my degree. Or this is the year I will get the linen cupboard under control. That's my one. And near the beginning of today's reading from Mark 8, Jesus asks a question which for some of us might be in that category of things that I really should get sorted out. Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Now, just to clarify, he's not inviting us to construct an identity for him. He's not saying, I'm a blank canvas, I'll be whatever you want, what do you want me to be? That's a very 21st century way of thinking, completely foreign to Jesus and his followers. No, Jesus is asking his friends, have you worked it out yet? Have you uncovered the truth about my real identity? And this is a question that everyone needs to answer. The question leaps out the page to all of us reading centuries later. Who do you say Jesus is? This is a different question to the one he asked at the very start of today's passage. At the very start, he said, who do people say that I am? And his disciples offered various answers. Some people say this, some people say that. And we could do the same. We could say, well... Hyper-skeptics claim you never existed. Atheists say you were just a Jewish teacher. Muslims say you were just a prophet. Churchy people reckon you're the son of God. But listing the opinions of other people is not enough. Jesus asks his disciples, he asks us, who do you say I am? And like the linen cupboard, maybe this is something that you need to sort out this year. In Mark 8, which we read, when Jesus asked that question, his disciple Peter confidently steps forward and gives an answer on behalf of all the other disciples. He says, you are the Messiah. Bing! He's got it, right? Give him the grand prize, the all-expenses trip to Fiji with the set of deluxe suitcases. Launch the confetti, roll the credits, shake his hand, he's worked it out, yes? Not quite. As soon as Peter gives this answer on behalf of the disciples, Jesus says to them, shut your mouths. Verse 30 says, he warned them not to tell anyone about him. That NIV translation is a bit underdone, I think. The Greek word is used again in verse 32 and 33, where it's translated as rebuke. He rebuked them not to tell anyone. This is the same word that Jesus uses when he's ordering a demon to stop tormenting a possessed person. It's the same word Jesus uses to silence a raging storm. Jesus is not just saying, look, you've got the right answer, but keep it to yourselves, give everyone else a chance to work it out. No, that's not it. Peter has said, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, shh, 
Why is this? It's because a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little bit of knowledge means you know how to pull the appliance apart, but not how to put it back together. A little bit of knowledge means you don't know how much you don't know. Being able to say the right words, but not have a right understanding of what they actually mean. That is a recipe for trouble. That's why when Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, shut up. As we read on, it starts to become clear. Because Jesus reveals the agenda of what's coming next. Verse 31, he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now it's Peter telling Jesus to shut up. Because Jesus is speaking in a very un-Messiah-ish way. Peter knew what the Messiah was meant to do. He'd read Psalm 2, just like we did. In Psalm 2, the voice of God said to the Messiah, his anointed one, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then the psalm had warned all the kings of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, the Messiah, or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Peter knows that the Messiah is the great king. He's got that much right. His concept of Messiah is a great king who will gather all God's people together to rise up and fight off the oppressive rule of the Romans, make Israel great again, make Israel into a world superpower. That's what a Messiah does. That's what Peter means when he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That's why he tells Jesus to quit the loser talk about rejection and dying. That's not on. But a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Now, you probably don't think of Jesus as a military leader who's going to rise up and defeat the Romans. But there's a lot of other versions of this mistake. Lots of other false concepts of Jesus as Messiah. Maybe you see Jesus as the Messiah who will quietly dispose of your sins and send you off to live a comfortable, respectable and prosperous life while you wait for heaven. Perhaps you see Jesus as a Messiah who reveals the truth about right and wrong, who gives us the perfect moral code so you know who you should pat on the back and who you should look down on and exclude. Maybe you see Jesus as a Messiah who stands with the oppressed and transforms society so the rich and the powerful no longer exploit the marginalised. Now there's grains of truth throughout here. In the end, Jesus is the one who will bring down every oppressive human empire. And Jesus does wash away your sins when you trust in him. Jesus does give us an ethical system to live by. He does transform societies. But if we take just one of these droplets of truth and combine it with our own preconceptions and stride off confidently in the service of Messiah Jesus, then we're heading for trouble. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. 
History is full of examples of Christians making terrible mistakes because they haven't paid attention to what it really means for Jesus to be Messiah. There have been times when Christians have been so concerned with being pure from sin and fit for heaven that they completely disconnected themselves from the world that God wants them to serve. There have been times when Christians have been so confident about Jesus' rule being a good thing, which it is, that they've tried to enforce Jesus' rule by military violence. There have been times when Christians have become so concerned with the transformation of society and the lifting up of the oppressed that they've then forgotten to actually call people to personal trust in Jesus. It's so easy to say Jesus is the Messiah, but to supply our own meaning for that word instead of letting Jesus show us what it really means for him to be the Messiah. Jesus won't put up with that. Look at how he reacts to Peter. It's in verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. When he says, get behind me, he means get away from me. I don't want to see your face. He addresses Peter as Satan. That is pretty full on. I don't recommend that strategy in your next argument with someone. Jesus says it because at this moment, Peter is functioning as Satan's mouthpiece. Back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus was being tested in the desert for 40 days. And the devil was trying to convince him to take the easy route. To pursue comfort and fame without being a suffering servant first. And now here is Peter doing exactly the same thing. Rejection, suffering, death. Come on, Jesus, don't talk that way. Let's find a better plan. That's the agenda of the evil one. It's an attempt to force his own concept of messiahship onto Jesus. And Jesus won't have a bar of it. This little interaction with his disciples prompts Jesus to then call together his wider band of followers, the crowd that's following him around, and to teach them a few things. Verse 34, he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is actually the first time that the word cross is used in Mark's gospel. Jesus has just told Peter and the disciples that he's going to be killed. Now he makes it clear that when he says killed, he doesn't just mean quietly disappear in the middle of the night and have to be heard of again. It's going to be much uglier and more public than that. A commentator called R.T. France, he points out that crucifixion was used in Roman Palestine as a form of execution for slaves and political rebels. It was thus not only the most cruel form of execution then in use, it also carried the stigma of social disgrace when applied to a free person. To have a member of the family crucified was the ultimate shame. Crucifixion was an inescapably public fate. It drew universal scorn and mockery. 
And that public disgrace, as well as physical suffering, began not when the condemned man was fixed to the cross, but with the equally public procession through the streets in which the victim had to carry the heavy crosspiece among the jeers and insults of the crowd. Peter's been trying to talk Jesus out of this whole rejection, suffering, dying pathway. But in response, Jesus says, this is not just the pathway for him. Everyone who wants to be his disciple must be willing to walk this same path. Now, not every disciple of Jesus will end up getting put to death, although many through the centuries have been. But every Christian must be ready to endure shame, rejection, humiliation, and even death if necessary, if they want to be on Jesus' team. Alternative definitions of Messiah, they allow you to dodge that shame. In a conservative, moralistic society, belonging to Jesus, the moralistic teacher, won't raise many eyebrows. Or if you're in the company of progressive activists, then following Jesus, the social reformer, won't upset too many people. But if you let Jesus define what it means for him to be the Messiah then belonging to him will mean you experience shame and rejection like he did. But in that same verse, verse 34, Jesus also says that anyone who wants to be his follower must deny themselves. And I actually wonder if in our context, that is the more shocking thing. Self is the great God of our age. Self-discovery, self-fulfillment, self-expression, self-definition. This is the air we breathe. In our circles, it's an unquestioned assumption that that's what life is all about. We think it without even realising that we think it. But Jesus says that following him as Messiah means taking the crown off our own heads, denying ourselves. That word deny is used later in Mark's gospel when Peter denies belonging to Jesus. He chickens out. He says, no, 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 he's not my master. And Jesus says being a disciple means denying ourselves, saying, no, I'm not my own master. My life is not my own. And this is scandalous to 21st century people like us. But as we read on, Jesus shows us that the stakes are high. The costs are high and the stakes are also high. Verse 35, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He's contrasting the short term with the long term here. You can save your here and now life. Avoid being arrested and imprisoned. Avoid all social stigma if you keep your mouth shut and your head down. And the opportunities for us to do that probably come in the passing conversations. What did you get up to on Sunday morning? Oh, just the usual. I reckon any religion is okay as long as you're sincere and tolerant, don't you think? 
Um, yeah, sure. How come you didn't just fudge your tax like everyone else? Oh, just personal preference. You can save your life in the short term. But Jesus says in the end, that approach will mean losing your life in eternity. But losing your life now, literally by being martyred or less literally in terms of losing income, losing a job, losing social status, losing your life now means saving your life in the end. Saving your life for eternity. But did you notice how Jesus talks about losing your life for me and for the gospel? Why is that word gospel in there? The gospel is the announcement of God's kingdom. The announcement that Jesus is the Messiah. Announcing the gospel is what Jesus has been doing since the beginning of Mark's gospel. He's been doing it in word and action. Jesus is talking about the speaking up which he calls his followers to do. Not necessarily a step-by-step presentation of how to be saved, but at the least a personal confession. I belong to King Jesus. I'm convinced he is the Lord of all. That kind of speaking up can often be costly. But it's absolutely necessary to be his disciple. Jesus knows it's tempting to go for short-term gains. Verse 36, he counters that. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That's a pretty chilling warning, isn't it? Jesus consistently maintains that history will end with a day of reckoning. A day when all the evil in the world is brought to light and dealt with, including the evil in every human heart, your heart and my heart. And our only hope on that day is to have Jesus, the perfect one, sticking up for us. Saying, she's with me. He's with me. But he warns us that he will only do that on the last day. If we today are willing to say, I'm with him. There are plenty of people who do seek to gain the whole world at the expense of their soul. Those who say, this romantic relationship is worth more to me than Jesus. Those who say, making it as a singer or actor or athlete or filmmaker is worth more to me than Jesus. Getting this job so I can buy that house, it's worth more to me than Jesus. Avoiding conflict with my grown-up kids, that is worth more to me than Jesus. They don't say it out loud, they say it with their actions. I've seen it happen, and I've seen where it leads. Are you someone who's tempted to chase the whole world at the expense of your soul? 
Well, let's start to wrap up. Today is the day of new resolutions, new goals, new ambitions, when we often think about new things we're going to accomplish, what we hope to gain in the year to come. But I want to ask you a different kind of question. What are you willing to lose in 2023 for Jesus and the gospel? Jesus had a strong rebuke for Peter, who thought he could follow a suffering free Messiah. Do you need to be rebuked for thinking that following Jesus won't come at a cost? As you plan 2023, what are you willing to sacrifice for Jesus and the gospel? Now, if push came to shove and there was a gun to your head, maybe you would be willing to give up your life. But for us in our situation, it's unlikely to come to that. And so we need to think about the less dramatic scenarios. Are you willing to lose your convenience and autonomy, some of your me time, because you're committed to serving other people in the name of Jesus, gathering with his people with regularity? Are you willing to lose a good chunk of your money because you're giving generously to gospel workers and to the poor? Are you willing to lose a job or a job opportunity whether it's as CEO of a football club or something a bit less newsworthy. If you're a parent, are you willing for your children to miss out on certain opportunities because you're committed to a weekly routine that includes time with God and his people? This stuff is part and parcel of following Jesus, the suffering Messiah. What are you willing to lose? What are you willing to give up this year for Jesus and the gospel? Jesus asked, what can a person give in exchange for their life? And the answer is nothing, right? You've got nothing that you can offer in exchange. But when you're doing the costly work of following Jesus, you are following someone who has made an exchange for your life. His suffering and rejection and death was him giving up his life in exchange for yours. It's a glorious exchange. It's like we front up to the counter and we hand in all our failures and guilt and in exchange, Messiah Jesus gives us a clean slate, security, acceptance into God's family and the life of the age to come. So who do you say that Jesus is? The answer could save your life.